Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by BlackRock. As such, the sponsor may suggest topics for discussion, but the final control over the content remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Steve Lapley, US Head of iShares Fixed Income ETFs for BlackRock. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Walter. You're welcome. Now, I always look at titles that are a bit unusual, and I think it's interesting to think about, you probably didn't expect to do this when you were a kid. I mean, how did you become a head of fixed income ETFs? And can, t- can you tell me a little bit about how you got started in investing? Uh, well, as far as investing goes, that's interesting that uh, that goes back to actually when I was a kid. Um, I, was, uh, I had a job delivering newspapers, and so I would make a bit of money each week. And uh, I was very fortunate to have a father who uh, taught me a little bit about uh, investing. And uh, he told me to save up my money and he would buy me um, one share of a particular stock. Um, and it's a very interesting stock um, in 2020 because it was none other than Apple. Um, so needless to say, had I held on to that one share, um, you know. So you didn't? <laughs> <laughs> I did not, but uh, that's how I got started in investing. As far as uh, ETFs, uh, that, that was actually um, an interesting journey that I think a lot of our clients go through. I was um, complaining to a colleague one day about how expensive it was to buy uh, treasury bonds through my brokerage account. And uh, this colleague looked at me somewhat incredulously and said, well, why don't you just buy an ETF? And uh, this was back in, I want to say 2003. And um, my response was, what was an ETF? And she, uh, she laughed at me um, and then proceeded to pull up the iShares.com website and uh, show me that there are indeed treasury ETFs that existed. Uh, so I thought that was an amazing thing. And that was literally my first, uh, my first encounter with bond ETFs. Yeah. So you didn't know they existed. And were a lot of people aware of ETFs in those early days? I, I don't think so. Um, this colleague was particularly astute. And so, you know, she was sort of ahead of, uh, ahead of everyone else. And, and, you know, she opened up a whole, uh, a whole new world of <laughs> how, to, how to access uh, fixed income markets. Yeah. Now, from what I understand is that so, some of the first ETFs were basically set up for tax reasons. Uh, sometimes when you are part of a mutual fund, when you exit and enter, it can then have effect on other members in that fund. And ETFs sort of 
got around that, that those type of problems. But at the same time, that's sort of a, a little bit of a retail type of uh, solution. When uh, did you see institutions uh, adopting ETFs and what, what is sort of uh, the experience uh, globally with, with the take up of um, ETFs by institutional investors? Yeah, I, I think that's right. The initial uptake, you know, myself as, as an example, as an individual who started buying uh, fixed income ETFs because it was a efficient for an individual to do so relative to uh, the bonds, which could be a lot more expensive. Um, I think that was pretty much the prevailing trend up until the global financial crisis um, in 2007, 2008, 2009. And I think what happened uh, over that period was that, you know, in the absence of well-functioning markets and in the absence of price discovery, um, you know, particularly in the credit markets. I think a lot of institutional investors became aware of credit ETFs and started literally watching them, if not using them outright, um, particularly during the worst of the crisis in September of 08. We've heard a number of anecdotes of institutional investors for the very first time becoming aware of LQD, our investment grade ETF, and HYG, our flagship high yield ETF, and, and using them for market context during that period of time. After that, um, I think it very started slowly scaling up. Um, and then in particular in the last um, two to three years, um, and especially this past year, we've seen um, institutional adoption really uh, skyrocket. Yeah. So has the, the way they use those ETFs changed, and in particular the fixed income ETFs, since uh, the, the start when they first started adopting them to, to now? Yeah, I think as the products have become uh, larger, um, more seasoned, more liquid, uh, the amount of use cases uh, that can be applied to them has grown as well. And so initially, um, when you know the volumes were lower, um, as an example, you would tend to see long-only investors uh, buy very small uh, amounts of them just for you know holding place purposes, something like that. Um, you know, if you look at the volumes that we've seen in the past couple of years, it opens up all kinds of possibilities for investors uh, to use them for tactical positioning, for hedging, for derivative complements or substitutes, uh, for portfolio trades, um, you know, on and on. So the, the amount of, of um, applications uh, that exist has, has grown quite a bit. And I understand they are also sometimes used for, for tactical asset allocation. How, how does that work? Yeah, that, that is a very important, um, a very important use case and a very important benefit of fixed income ETFs. And you saw that um, just last quarter during uh, the peak of the, uh, the, the COVID-19 induced volatility. Um, as markets, as the underlying bond markets um, became really challenged, it was very hard for investors um, at the beginning to sell risk and it was very hard once sentiment turned for investors to uh, to get long risk. And in particular, when market sentiment turned positive, that's when we saw a lot of investors very nimbly using ETFs to quickly get back into the market and do so at scale, um, which would have been much, much harder to do in uh, in the underlying market. Yeah, yeah. Now, we are today in a very different type of market environment, very unusual. What has sort of been the experience with uh, fixed income ETFs during the, the months of March and April where the markets reacted quite strongly to the pandemic? And have these ETFs remained liquid? Yeah, so the, the period of late February all the way um, you know, through April um, was a, um, a very good 
uh, data point for um, what we tend to see in stress markets um, with, with fixed income ETFs. And that pattern has repeated itself over time. And generally what that pattern looks like um, is that, you know, in a risk off as an example, um, this can occur in a risk on as well, but in a risk off, um, you can't see, um, you know, asymmetric trading. That is, um, you know, investors are, are trying to go the same direction. As a result, liquidity recedes and it becomes very, very challenging uh, to move risk in the underlying bonds. Typically during periods like that, what we also see uh, is that volumes for fixed income ETFs on exchange move up very, very sharply. Um, and so as an example, during the first quarter of this year, which, which would include um, the worst of that COVID-19 volatility period, um, we saw about $1.3 trillion of fixed income ETFs trade in the US. That compares um, to $2.6 trillion for all of 2019. Um, so we saw basically half of last year's volume trade in a single quarter because of that volatility. To put a finer point on that, um, some, some other interesting statistics, we would typically see in 2019 around 11 or 12 billion uh, trade in a single day. That's up, by the way, from about five or six billion, you know, four or five years before. But uh, during the first quarter of this year, that number was as high as 35 or $36 billion in a single day. Yeah. Now, one of the questions that, that I had when the markets froze up, especially sort of in the credit space, these ETFs kept trading. And since they are sort of a, a derivative of the underlying market, um, which has frozen up, how accurate are they then representing uh, the pricing in the underlying market? Yeah, the way I would characterize them, Walter, is that, you know, they, they are actually a, a portfolio of bonds, but they are, uh, through the structure, permitted to trade on exchange. And that's, that's very powerful because, you know, the individual bonds only trade over the counter and the over the counter market, whereas the ETF um, through that wrapper can trade in the over the counter market through the creation redemption mechanism where bonds are exchanged for shares, but then they also trade and mostly trade on exchange as a portfolio in that wrapper. And so because it is actually a bond portfolio of trading through that wrapper on exchange, um, we believe that the, the price information uh, content is very high. So what you're seeing is a, a real-time price in very large volume sometimes um, for a portfolio trading, you know, throughout the day on exchange. And to give you an example, uh, I think March 12th was one of the, um, you know, one of the most challenging days as far as the risk off market. And it was, it was acute in both equities and credit. And on that particular day, um, when the underlying market um, was, was, you know, running into a, a lot of uh, challenges as far as um, liquidity and trading, we saw LQD trade 90,000 times, nearly 90,000 times on exchange that day. The largest five holdings um, on average traded about three dozen times. So if you look at a price based on 90,000 trades versus a price based on a few dozen trades, um, I believe that we have more confidence in, uh, in, in the price based on 90,000 trades. Yeah, fair enough. And I think you've used in the past also the example of bank holidays where when that is obviously closed and the OTC market is closed, these ETFs pretty much reflect the price when the uh, markets open again. But I was also thinking those are relatively short time frames. In, in some of the crises, it can be a, a lot longer where markets might be frozen. Do you think that it will still hold up over longer time frames where the interaction with the underlying market has been quite a while and maybe investors' memory get a bit short? 
Well, th that's the benefit of these products is that you are trading the underlying, uh, but you're trading it in portfolio format um, through the ETF wrapper on exchange. So um, I don't view it as, as necessarily losing an anchoring or a tethering to the underlying market. I view it more as the underlying market itself is trading um, in a different format. Uh, on exchange. And so because of that reason, that, that's an incredibly valuable thing when the underlying markets um, seize up and maybe even for a prolonged period of time. And an example of this would be, um, you know, if anything, uh, more of a persistent risk off would have been the week, uh, uh, you know, September of 2008, uh, that week that Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy, that was a very challenging week uh, for the markets. And you saw, um, although the uh, credit ETFs were much smaller, uh, back then, you saw them trade again in relative terms in much larger volumes than than normal. But they traded like that throughout the week. And yes, there were um, discounts to net asset value. But then you have to ask yourself, what does a discount mean when the underlying bonds are are not trading at all, or if they are, they're trading very thinly? And to go back, you know, to our earlier conversation, we we would rather put more weight on the price of something that is actively trading throughout that period of time. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about reflecting accurate price. Um, but when I was reading up on this topic, I also saw that you did some research into fixed income ETFs as a leading indicator. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so you may be referring to a paper that we published in, I believe it was 2013. Um, which is which has been some time ago. I think that paper was called, um, you know, Bond uh, Market Price Discovery Clarity Through the Lens of an Exchange. I think it was published in the journal Portfolio Management. The, the concept was um, along the lines of what we were just talking about, this idea that you, um, through an ETF structure, you have an entire portfolio of bonds that's trading throughout the day on exchange, and that is different than the individual bonds uh, trading discreetly um, during the day and sometimes maybe not trading on a given day at all. And what we found through that research was because you have this concept of a portfolio trading very frequently, um, that it does give some information value in terms of the direction of the underlying market. And it's not necessarily that um, the underlying market is lagging when it does trade, it's because the underlying market hasn't traded yet. And so think of it, uh, think of the ETF price in that context as a window into where individual bond prices may transact, right? Um, where, where those prices may actually be set when a trade ultimately does occur, which may take some time relative to an ETF, which is, which is trading constantly. So we found that, you know, depending on the sector, um, you could see a lead, and this is relative to index values. And the main point here is that because it takes a while for all the bonds to finally trade um, for an index, which sometimes has thousands of bonds, it could be a period of days. Um, that lead lag behavior. And I think in uh, the conclusion of that paper, you also said, well, that that window sort of enables strategies to be developed on the back of that. What, what sort of strategies are they? Can they make use of sort of that, that lag in the market where they just have that information a little bit earlier than anybody else? And has that actually been developed strategies like that? Well, I think it's, it's less about uh, a timing strategy per se and more about an actionability uh, strategies. So in other words, you can see in real time, and you saw this in March, um, and then you saw it, um, you know, one sentiment turned late in March and into April, um, you could see the ETF prices moving very quickly. And again, it's not necessarily um, a 
direct arbitrage, but it's more of a, a very quick indicator of where sentiment's turning. So it gives investors the ability, they can see they can see the market turning quickly, where if the best way to think about this is if ETFs didn't exist, it might be much, much harder to see sentiment turning. You may see a bond trade and then another one and then another one, and they're trading up, but they may not be, the, the price formation and price discovering those bonds may not be very quick, but you could see that very rapidly through the ETF. So it allows investors to realize that A, okay, market sentiment is changing quickly. And second, uh, secondly, if I do want to uh, take advantage of that and participate in that, rather than trying to buy the underlying bonds, which we saw was very hard to do, even when sentiment turned positive, you could implement that trade through an ETF uh, almost instantaneously. Yeah. As an example, through something like, you know, HYG or high yield ETF, when people saw sentiment change in high yield bonds, you, you could actually execute um, a trade in the ETF, whereas it may have been hard uh, to do in the underlying bonds. So does those type of strategies, does it affect the underlying OTC market? Can it have um, possibilities for, for distortions? No, we, we don't believe so. If anything, um, we think uh, the ETFs accomplish a couple of things. One, they do provide this price discovery, which, you know, when we talk to traders um, who trade the underlying cash bonds, um, they, they've all uh, said that for the most part, that that's very useful uh, to be able to see that real time uh, price discovery for uh, you know that that the ETF that the ETF gives the uh, the other thing would be you know this idea that because of the ETF existing and because of the um, idea that there are you know a number of bonds that are in the ETF those bonds tend to enjoy better sponsorship in the market than bonds that are not in the ETF so I think initially if you go back several years there were always concerns about well you know, perhaps the ETF could cause pressure on the underlying bonds and, and may cause unintended uh, consequences. What we found was that bonds that are part of the index that an ETF's tra ETF tracks tend to enjoy better sponsorship. They have better breadth of trading. And it's a very simple function of the fact that there is more activity in those bonds. The ETF is active. Um, there are creations and redemptions. And therefore, those bonds um, will trade and there's better price discovery and, and better uh, liquidity in those bonds than may otherwise occur. Yeah. Now, we often think of uh, tightening regulations to be obstacles to put in place in, in, in strategies. But I think in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008 uh, or 2009, some of the tightening of regulations actually increased the demand for bond ETFs. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So uh, I, th I think it's, it's clear that uh, broker-dealers and banks had to uh, revise their their operational models after the crisis. Regulations, part of that, it was it was uh, just the the uh, costs of doing business in in trading and warehousing risk went up as well. And so, you know, everybody had to revise their operating models to run um, at a much leaner, uh, you know, run a much leaner balance sheet than before. Um, and that was just out of necessity, just because of the the costs of, of having a larger balance sheet and a larger warehouse. And, you know, the analogy I like to use, you, you went from sort of a warehouse model. And if you think of the purpose of inventory in any business, the purpose of inventory is to cushion um, shocks and supply and demand. Um, it allows you to sort of smooth out when, you know, uh, there's too much demand or there's, there's um, you know, too much supply inventory is designed to take up, that, uh, take up that slack. When you are unable to carry a large amount of inventory, then you switch to more of a just-in-time model. This idea that, you know, look, if you want to buy a large block of bonds, I may have some, 
But for the rest of them, I'm going to have to go out and source those um, from another investor. I'm not going to have to figure out what price works for that investor and then come back to you. Um, all of that uh, may slow things down um, and make things less efficient. I think just naturally investors started looking uh, for other tools which would allow them um, to be able to put on risk or, or manage risk uh, much more efficiently and rapidly. And so I think, you know, Pond ETFs lent themselves very naturally to that idea because you had the exchange liquidity rather than, you know, working on more of an agency model in the underlying market. The exchange liquidity allowed investors, for example, to put cash to work very, very quickly. That being said, they could then leg out of that ETF and into very specific bonds as they became available. But at a minimum, it allowed them to stay in the market to earn the yield of a particular sector like investment grade or high yield. And then they could, they could then move on from there when they, when they were able to source bonds, ultimately. I want to talk a little bit about the types of investors that use fixed income ETFs. Are there any uh, sort of institutions that are more attracted to this? I understand, for instance, that insurance companies are, are quite uh, a big uh, takers of these ETFs. Uh, I think initially, if I look back at the pattern of adoption over, over time, um, hedge funds were early adopters, uh, mainly because um, they are much more comfortable um, across different types of, of products and wrappers. And, and um, you know, they don't necessarily have investment guideline restrictions or, or things like that. So they, they're, able to, um, they're able to use a much uh, more diverse set of products. And so they were the earlier adopters. Um, after that, um, then you started seeing traditional long-only um, investors, and that included asset managers, insurance companies, um, and, and pensions. Insurance companies over the last several years in particular um, have really ramped up their use. And I think uh, it's for a number of reasons. Um, one, over time, it became more and more challenging to source uh, bonds in the new issue market in the U.S. It's a very competitive uh, situation. And, you know, oftentimes it was just challenging to get, you know, full allocations, et cetera. And so, Insurance companies were very much keen on using uh, fixed income ETFs, credit ETFs in particular, as a um, you know temporary holding place, as I talked about, until they could source um, you know the bonds that they they uh, the specific bonds that they wanted over time. But that lent itself also to this concept of a liquidity sleeve, where then they started holding you know a more longer term you know sleeve of of uh, credit ETF exposure as a buffer. So if they needed to put, to, to put cash to work, they could increase the allocation in that ETF. If they needed to raise cash for any reason, then they could decrease that allocation in the ETF. But it was sort of this constant uh, buffer in, in, their, uh, in their, their investment accounts. And the other thing in the U.S. I think that has hastened adoption with insurance companies, um, the you know, U.S. regulators at the national level passed uh, some, some regulations which put uh, bond ETFs uh, more on equal footing with individual bonds and uh, allowed for insurance companies to invest in and carry uh, those bonds, um, you know, in, in a way that, that, was, that was very comparable to individual bonds. So that also, um, I think, was helpful. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that hedge funds were some of the earlier adopters, and that's just natural because they're probably more quickly comfortable with new instruments and, and new strategies. I believe that these ETFs also are used in that context for relative value trades. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is, um, as the products matured, we talked about this uh, earlier, um, it became a lot more liquid. It opened up this concept of relative value. And, and the way we would think about that is, 
going long one instrument or short another. Um, it could simply mean just preferring one instrument over another at a given point in time, but it, it can also mean a Paris trading concept. Um, and where we see this would be more commonly in credit. So as an example, um, we saw in the, you know, sort of the worst of the volatility um, in March, we saw the CDX uh, basis versus cash um, widen out to about 300 basis points. So cash was um, was a lot cheaper because of uh, because of the pronounced sell-off going on in, in the underlying cash bonds. And that would uh, lend itself into an opportunity if you believe that basis was going to narrow, you would get long the underlying cash bonds, um, and then you could buy protection on, on CDX as an example. Uh, but that was harder to do because of, precisely because of the reasons why credit spreads were so wide. Uh, liquidity was, was very difficult, um, which is part of the reason why you saw this, this sharp, um, sharp increase in spreads. Uh, the, the solution for that then was to, instead of trying to buy all the cash bonds or a large amount of them, you could simply buy um, a credit ETF like LQD. Um, and then you could, uh, as, as your, your cash bond index proxy, and then you could buy protection against it um, and take advantage of, of a narrowing in that basis. So it's, it's basically another tool in the, in the toolbox that you can use when the opportunity arises. That, that's right. We, we speak with a number of active managers who describe it uh, exactly like that. They refer to it as, uh, as a toolkit or another way to refer to it as a dashboard. As an example, uh, you know, our, our own investors um, describe it as, you know, if you have a view on a given day, you come in, you decide you want to be long credit, you have an array of tools that you look at. You have... Uh, cash bonds, you have derivatives, you have ETFs. In that particular case, depending on the size you want to do, what is the cheapest, most efficient way to express that view? Likewise, if you want to be short. Yeah, yeah. Now, often when I talk to to in investors, um, the very nature of ETFs is the fact that they are a listed vehicle. But because they're listed, they're also subject to the sentiment in the market and, and, and sometimes the, the panic in the market. And they behave a little bit more like the rest of the market. This is particularly a criticism, I think, of, of uh, uh, real estate investment trusts, where they sometimes say, well, it's almost more like an equity than a than, than property type of holding. What is your opinion on that in relation to fixed income ETFs? Is there a chance, is there times that they act more like equity? Now, again, it, it, it's a little bit, uh, it's a similar um, discussion um, relative to the price discovery uh, conversation. We, we firmly believe um, that the ability for something to trade has value. In other words, just because it trades on exchange doesn't transform the character of the asset class. Um, we view it as an incremental benefit having two places to trade that being the over-the-counter market and the exchange versus only one place to trade. And so we, we view um, this exchange-traded feature as, as um, a very, very powerful uh, benefit of the structure. And as we, as we discussed um, earlier, as an example, on a day when the bond market's closed, um, the ability to still be able to trade treasuries, credit, municipals, emerging markets, all of the above, the ability to trade um, that on a bond market holiday has has tremendous utility. Or, you know, like we saw in March, when markets are, are um, really experiencing difficulty, the ability to trade, um, you know, fairly significant amounts of risk at tighter spreads than the underlying, um, that has a benefit. So so we don't really view the fact that it trades on exchange as, as somehow changing the character of the underlying fixed income asset class. 
Now, we've talked about the use of these ETFs in, in, in multiple contexts, um, the relative value trades as a holding asset to remain fully invested. Can it also be used for risk management in sort of a, a, as a hedge? Yes. So this is, this is becoming an increasingly uh, prevalent dynamic. And where we see it um, is in the very rapid growth in options on the ETF, listed options. We are seeing increasing numbers of investors using these options as a way to either protect portfolios or to enhance um, long exposure that they're taking. And then, of course, there, as we discussed before, there are options relative value strategies, whether that's within the credit ETFs uh, options themselves, or interestingly, you are starting to see sophisticated players uh, put on trades where they are, for example, long credit ETF vol and short CDX vol or vice versa, things like that. So um, that market has, has really grown as an example, HYG options, you know, now trade hundreds of millions of dollars in notional a day, um, and, and it continues to grow. Yeah, yeah. So I think the first fixed income ETF was launched around 2002. Uh, we've seen a lot of development since then and a lot more sophisticated use. If I can ask you to do a little bit of crystal ball gazing, where do you think uh, we're going in the next couple of years? I think that um, probably where you'll see the most innovation, um, you, will, you will see more and more active, uh, actively managed fixed income ETFs. We're already seeing that. Um, but, but I also th think you'll see a surge in what we would call factor-based uh, ETFs and um, sustainable or ESG. So first on, on the factor front, um, I think there is a desire to be able to isolate and use uh, fixed income factors for portfolio construction. Um, you know, so, so at a very high level, um, being able to isolate um, you know, credit risk factors, we, we do have a couple of, of credit ETFs, both an investment grade and a high yield uh, ETF that will screen on both quality and value. And so if investors have um, a strong view on those, on those factors, um, that would be a way to position for it. We also have a macro um, a macro factor ETF, which basically seeks to balance credit volatility and interest rate volatility as an example. So I think you'll see more granularity in that space uh, because investors are beginning to realize that, you know, instead of looking at a portfolio and saying, well, I have a thousand bonds in it um, and it's all, these are all actively managed positions. What they're really seeing as they step back, this portfolio has some amount of beta. This portfolio has some amount of static uh, credit factor risk. This portfolio has some amount of interest rate volatility risk that's static. Oh, and then yes, I do have idiosyncratic alpha. And the real question is, well, rather than going out and buying a thousand bonds and paying all that bid offer, can you build those component pieces of it much more cheaply using the beta and factor ETFs and then spend your, your risk budget and your money, uh, your transaction cost money on the idiosyncratic alpha where you're adding the most conviction. And I think we're going to see a lot of that. The ESG front too is exciting. You know, we're, we're seeing more and more innovation along that front. Um, and we recently, it's small relative to ESG and equities, but we recently crossed a billion dollars um, in the U.S. Um, sustainable suite and fixed income for, for, for iShares. Yeah. So these ETFs, they're becoming increasingly more granular. There's more sophisticated ways of applying them. Now, this might be a bit of a theoretical question, but do you think we will ever see an institutional grade portfolio that's built completely out of ETFs? 
Well, I, I think you do see um, elements of this already. Um, you know, there, uh, as an example, in the U.S., um, the proliferation of "quote unquote" model portfolios. There, there are firms who, you know, this is their business. They build entire portfolios out of out of ETFs. Um, I think that, you know, at the limit, for example, if you take an asset manager who is running uh, a core plus strategy, as an example, I do think there is a role for all of the above. So would, would I envision that to be ever 100% ETS? Probably not. But I do think um, rather than seeing, you know, 99% of it uh, being individual bonds, I could see a future state where quite a lot of that portfolio is what we just talked about, you know, components of uh, beta ETFs, components of factor ETFs, as an example, and then you know again some some high conviction positions in individual bonds for for alpha. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, Steve, thank you very much for this interview. It was very interesting. No, thank you, Water. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.